Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Michelle Gelfand, is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland and author of the new book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. The book, which is written for a popular audience, is based in part on a scientific study conducted by Gelfand in 33 countries in which she examines cultural norms around rule following. As Dr. Gelfand explains, certain countries have a higher tolerance for norm and rules breaking than others, and these discrepancies can have important consequences for international relations. Dr. Gelfand's study is, to me, a really interesting way at looking at key cultural differences between countries. I am confident you will enjoy this episode. It's, it was a lot of fun to have. And, of course, I'll post a link to her book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before we begin, though, I wanted to let you know about a new offering I've just made available to premium subscribers to the podcast. I've created and am creating a content library that includes some of my favorite interviews with foreign policy superstars and newsmakers. The episodes I've added to the premium podcast feed in the recent days are from episodes I published several years ago and now are no longer available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And, and what's great about these conversations is that they are not time or news pegged. Rather, they are evergreen conversations in which some very interesting and sometimes kind of famous people talk about their very interesting lives and how they got to be who they are. You can click over to the Patreon page using the link in the description field of this show. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, you don't even have to put down your phone to check out our offerings on Patreon. But wait, there is more. Premium subscribers to the show also unlock access to my daily morning news clip service called Dawn's Digest. This is an easily skimmable roundup of easily missed stories around the world that arrives in your inbox every weekday morning. It is a lot of work to put together, but I put it together every single day nonetheless uh, in order to emphasize stories that are de-emphasized by the mainstream media. Don's Digest is a pretty high-end service for which large NGOs and government agencies like USAID and the UK Parliament's Librarian's Office subscribe, and I'll be making it available to premium subscribers to the show, again, to gain access to this exclusive News Clips service. Support the show on Patreon. Just uh, click the links. You'll figure it out. I trust you. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Michelle Gelfand. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I'm a cross-cultural psychologist, and I've been studying something pretty puzzling over the last couple of decades. And it's something that's omnipresent. It's all around us, uh, but it tends to be invisible. We rarely notice it. Um, it's something that is distinctly human. Uh, no other species have it to the extent that we do. And it's also something that causes a lot of cooperation, but also conflict. So this is this puzzle of omnipresent, invisible, distinctly human, and causes both conflict and cooperation. And it's really called culture. <laughs> and culture is something that eludes us. We tend to not really notice it or realize how important it is in terms of impacting our behavior. And often we think about culture in terms of very superficial distinctions like red versus blue or rural urban, rich and poor. So I been setting out to try to understand are there some deeper cultural codes that drive our differences. And it turns out that there are, and it has a lot to do with the strength of social norms that groups adhere to. And what I mean by social norms are basically these rules for behavior that we follow. And we follow norms constantly. You know, we don't even recognize that we decide to put- Wait, wait like what's an example of, of sort of how I might follow a norm throughout the day today? So, for example, you're probably wearing clothes when you go outside today, right? <laughs> and you probably Good guess. Face, yeah. <laughs> you probably face the front of elevators versus the back, mm. and you probably don't start um, dancing on the subway, for example, or shouting loudly in libraries. Like we're constantly following social norms, and we don't even realize it until we see people breaking them, um, like I just described. That's a world without social norms, uh, without any agreed upon standards of behavior. And what's really fascinating is that humans developed social norms many thousands of years ago so that we can coordinate and predict each other. And we, and, and we really need social norms to really do basically anything. Our societies would collapse without them. But what I found is that some groups are more strict in terms of their social norms. They're what I call tight cultures. They have strong norms and less tolerance for deviance from norms. And other groups, groups are much more loose. They have much more permissiveness. They allow for a wider range of behavior in everyday settings. And this distinction of tight and loose is something that is not just found today in modern societies, but it's also something I found differentiated ancient societies. And it has a really important set of trade-offs that it gives us. And also it evolves for good reason. So it's something that we need to know about. So like, what's an example of a tight culture? Yeah, so in our research, we studied uh, about 33 nations scattered across the planet. And, and we uh, measured tightness, looseness, just like you might measure someone's personality. We can ask people about the strength of their norms in their societies and see that they agree upon that, that those questions. And in our data, places like Japan and Singapore, uh, Germany, Austria tended to veer tight. And countries like New Zealand and the Netherlands, Brazil, Greece, tended to veer loose. Of course, all cultures have some domains of tightness and looseness, but these are sort of general um, differences. And, you know, it's really fascinating because um, you could see that places like Singapore um, has many, many rules. They're called fine country because they have so many fines, even for chewing gum, for um, walking uh, naked in front of one's curtains at home could be something that you can be fined for. Um, spitting on the ground, all things that you could be fined for in Singapore. And it contrasts to somewhere like New Zealand, where people walk barefoot in banks, where people have a much more casual attitude about sex and sexuality, um, and so forth. So you see these differences both on our surveys, but also in other indicators that we've measured. Mm -hmm. And so... 
so you you have like these kind of categories of cultures, um, very tight cultures on on one extreme, very loose cultures on the other. I suppose many countries probably fall somewhere in in the middle. Yeah, that's right. So you know, countries. This is a continuum of tight loose. Um, you can find countries that are at the extreme. In our data, the extreme countries are places like Venezuela and Ukraine. They veered extremely loose in our data, where people felt that no one is following social norms in these countries. And at the very opposite extreme, we have places like Pakistan and India that tend to be extremely tight. Um, and so we can also, by the way, differentiate the 50 states in terms of their tightness and looseness. Again, on a continuum, uh, we measured this and published this paper uh, recently in PNAS. And uh, That's the Proceedings the of the National <laughs> Academy of Sciences, right? That's right. Yeah. And we could say, look, this I love when my acronym knowledge gets <laughs> tested. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. hundred yeah. percent. You know, and we could see in the U.S. 50 states that, you know, places like the South and parts of the Midwest tend to veer tight and the coasts tend to veer loose. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even differentiate organizations in terms of tightness and looseness, the strength of norms. Places like manufacturing or airlines or nuclear power plants veer tight mm-hmm. and places like startups and design and tech veer loose. So it's a It's a framework that you can use to analyze everything from nations to states to organizations and even our own households, like how strict or permissive are you in the domain of parenting and, you know, in your own house. Um, So so that's really a fractal pattern. So you mentioned that you you sort of you surveyed 33 countries. You also did a historic survey. Um, What have you learned about why? countries become tight or loose or what causes uh, mm-hmm. looseness or, or tightness in the cultures of countries? Yeah, this is such a great question because often we don't think about culture evolving for good reasons. You know, we see these puzzling behaviors like in Singapore that you can't chew gum and we think that's weird. Like, why would that ever evolve? And that's what I set out to find. And I found, you know, there's no obvious difference between tight cultures and loose cultures. They have different, they they're in different places. They have different languages, different religions, different traditions. But one factor that tends to really predict tightness, both in modern societies, in ancient societies, and in our states, is the level of threat that groups face. And what I mean by threat is basically threats from Mother Nature, like natural disasters or uh, famine. But it could be human threats, like places that have had the threat of invasions for many, many t- years and centuries or the spread of pathogens, or even having exceedingly high population density, many people per square mile, these are contexts where tightness tends to evolve. Um, And with good reason, when you have a lot of threat that you can't solve on your own, you really need rules to help you coordinate to survive. And the looser groups that face less threat um, don't need rules as much. Um, They can afford to be more permissive. And so we studied this. We actually measured for example, population density in the year 1500, or how many times has a nation or state been subject to national disasters, or um, you know how many times over the last hundred years has been the, been the threat of invasion on one's territory. All these things are, predict tightness. This is also the case in ancient societies as well. So there's this link between threat and tightness that's. Um, Really makes a lot of sense. Well, then, then what about the the question of 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 um, pardon me of Ukraine, which you said was like a really loose uh, culture, yet has been you know invaded and and you know dominated and is currently uh, you know under occupation of a foreign power. Wouldn't uh, your research yes. suggest that there would be like a tighter culture? Well, this is a really good question. So um, what and I, it raises the broader point that is that not threat is not the only predictor of tightness. 
But what is interesting about the context of the Ukraine is that it went, and many sort of former European, Eastern European countries follow some of this pattern where there's a very strong, tight order. And when you take out that tight order, it often goes to the opposite extreme of normlessness. And when enemy, we collect our right? yeah. enemy, exactly. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're testing my <laughs> old social science uh, that's right. knowledge I mean, too. That's precisely the yeah. case. Actually, you know, this is a pendulum shift that we see not just with the Ukraine, um, not just with Venezuela, but also you can think about Arab Spring through this framework. So you take out an autocratic ruler in a context where they've had strong control. Autocrats, by the way, thrive on getting people to distrust each other. It's part of their, you know. MO is that they don't want people to trust each other because they might throw them out. So they thrive on getting people to mistrust each other. When you take out an autocrat and that tight control, it often these systems go to the opposite extreme of normlessness. And I've actually studied that after Mubarak was was taken out. We were on the ground in Egypt and you could see people who felt this tremendous normlessness because it was really unraveling Egypt. They really wanted a Salafi or Muslim Brotherhood government to be put, put back in place. And this is what I call autocratic recidivism. When you're in a state of normlessness, it's untenable, and it often predicts these dramatic shifts. So that's where I would say that we can really think about identifying contexts that are getting too normless. Uh, ISIS is another great example. Most people don't realize that ISIS was actually welcomed in a lot of areas when they first arrived in Mosul. And we have data to support this, that mm -hmm. people felt that there was no norms that were guiding behavior, that it was really becoming a cultural vacuum. And when ISIS arrived- Well, they the survived. Sunni minorities in, in those cities welcomed them a, to protect them from their Shia neighbors who they thought might be you know, abusive and, and against their interests. Yeah, but also these areas where like, cesspools of anti-normative behavior, rapid you know, uh, rises in crime, uh, no ability to organize social action, even in basic issues of justice. So it's, it was a broader trend that these areas were becoming normless. And that's where tight forces can often take over those areas uh, to provide stability. So, so this – yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to mention another really interesting point um, as another counterexample just to follow up on the Ukraine is, you know, there are some countries that have a lot of threat, but they're still really loose. And I'll give an example, which is Israel. And it really is a very interesting um, – uh, reason, and I'll get into this because it suggests other predictors. So Israel is a very diverse country, and diversity in our data predicts looseness. When you have a lot of people, up to a certain point, when it gets extremely diverse, but when you have moderate levels of diversity, you, you, it's harder to agree upon rules. Um, Judaism also raises another question around why Israel is, is very loose, and it's it's a religion of debate, and debate pushes groups toward looseness. There's the saying that there's three Jews in the room and, you know, 10 opinions. <laughs> and so, you know, each country has its unique context that might push itself towards tightness or looseness. So it's important, even when we can have general principles, that we can really zoom in and understand these contexts where you could see it really makes a lot of sense why they evolved to be loose. So, so you've hinted at, at this a bit in our conversation, but it seems to me that your research does hold some important sort of explanatory power when it comes to this kind of current trend we're seeing in the sort of rise of authoritarianism in in countries uh, around the world. Uh, let's talk about Brazil, for example. I mean, another very diverse country, one that presumably I would think would be a rather loose country, yet an authoritarian was just uh, elected. Yeah. yeah, that's right. You're still there? 
Yeah, 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 I'm still here. Okay, good. Sorry, I just lost you a second. This is a really interesting question because, um, you know, I've been studying for many years objective threat that countries are facing in terms of disasters or invasions. But, you know, what I found in my research is that threat doesn't have to be objective for people to want tightness. People who feel threatened, whether it's real or illusory, want greater tightness and strong leaders, autocratic leaders. So, for example, before the U.S. election, I found that people who felt really threatened, whether by ISIS or immigrants or North Korea, they felt the U.S. was too loose. They wanted it to tighten up. And that predicted their vote for Trump. And we found the same pattern in France with the Le Pen election. Threat leads people to want to have a tighter state of the world and the strong leaders that can help them coordinate. And this is not something, by the way, that's particularly uh, relevant to just today. This has been happening for centuries where leaders, they almost are reading from a tight, loose playbook. They're tapping into this deep evolutionary principle of when people feel threatened, they want strong rules and strong leaders. Um, and that's what people um, are doing. They're, a lot of these populist leaders are amplifying and exaggerating threats, and they're targeting groups that are already threatened. Like, for example, the working class, who is tighter in our examples, who is facing a lot of disruptions. And they're using that to gain popularity. And so the important point is that even fake threat can tighten people up. I've shown that in my own experiments, that quickly when people feel threatened, they want tighter rules and they want autocratic leaders, just like they do when whole countries chronically have faced these kinds of contexts. Um, What does your research say about relations between countries? Like, does the international relations of a loose country and a tight country... um, is there any sort of give and take that's that's sort of necessary in, in those relations to, to sort of thrive? Yeah, this is a really good question. I mean, we see this problem in, I would say, a lack of cultural intelligence when people are interacting across cultural borders, whether they're diplomats or they're global leaders or managers or even travelers. You know, we think a lot about intelligence or even emotional intelligence, but in, the, in my field, really, it's cultural intelligence that predicts success when you're negotiating with people from different cultures and when you're trying to, you know, merge and have acquisitions um, raise your levels of performance. For example, in a recent study that I just talked about in HBR, let's see if you got that acronym. Harvard <laughs> Business Review. Bam. Woo, good. Oh, man, I'm on <laughs> fire today. <laughs> We studied like mergers and acquisitions across, you know, 3000 companies that have tried to merge between different countries. And what we found is the greater the difference in tight loose between these two countries, the the worse they performed in terms of the the return on investment. And in some cases, can you give an example? Well, in the example that we drew on, you know, that motivated the study was the Daimler Chrysler merger you know, which looked at first like a really happy marriage, like a perfect marriage. But what people don't realize is that even if they seem like they have a lot of compatibilities technologically or they can help each other um, get access to different markets or um, innovations, that deep beneath the surface is this cultural iceberg of tight loose. And we know from our research that, you know, they really are very different types of organizations, tight organizations and loose organizations vary on the people, their practices, uh, and they're leaders. And so when they merge, these things really clash. And, and often people don't anticipate these, these clashes. It recently happened also with even within this U.S., like Amazon, which leans tight um, for good reasons, was merging with Whole Foods. And they've had a lot of problems. And a lot of it can be traced to differences in tight loose. So one sort of basic issue is understanding and diagnosing the levels of 
norm strength that we have in our existing organizations before we merge, and then to negotiate what domains, you know, would a tight organization be able to be more flexible in? We call this flexible uh, or structured uh, tightness. Uh, sorry, we, we call this structured looseness. Like sometimes loose companies have to give up. Actually, let me start over yeah, <laughs> on that sure, one. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, so one of the most important things to do first is to diagnose our levels of tightness and looseness in our organizations and then try to figure out how might we negotiate these differences prior to merging. Sometimes tight organizations need to loosen up a little bit. Um, you know, we call this flexible tightness. What domains, you know, could these companies give up some control? And on the flip side, loose organizations have to also sometimes tighten up uh, and have more structure. We call this structured looseness. And these are things that are eminently negotiable. And so it's important to think these through before merging. So Um, like surveying sort of the the global landscape right now, um, I I know your your survey was of of 33 countries. Um, Are there any like kind of global trends towards tightness or or looseness that are cross-cultural? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is, is there like some, you know, are, is is there any sort of universal trend that can be spoken mm-hmm. of sort of towards, say, greater looseness or greater tightness over time? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, in one paper that we have um, under review at Nature Human Behavior, we've, we've shown that like looseness, especially in the U.S., has increased over time. Um, you can see that, you know, we've gotten much less strict in terms of a lot of rules. Uh, but at the same time, um, we can see dramatic rise in tightness all around the world. Um, we see this, you know, in many countries. And again, it's dictated in large part by a lot of rulers who are activating and amplifying threat and tightening groups. It, it's remarkable because we actually live, as Steven Pinker says, you know, and argues cogently that in a much safer world, in a lot of ways, that doesn't mean we don't have to be vigilant to threat. But when we have leaders all over the place from, you know, Orban, who is talking about Muslim invaders, or Matteo in Italy, who's talking about their civilization and culture being threatened, or Le Pen saying that globalization is bringing France to its knees. When people hear these kinds of threats, it activates tightness. So we're seeing this kind of shift in uh, where the axis of tight loose is appearing. It's not just across nations or within nations. It's now separating people from the working class in rural areas, uh, for example, in Brexit. Uh, from people in the more cosmopolitan, loose um, cities, and that's happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so this episode is being recorded before the U.S. midterm elections. It'll probably be published after uh, the mm-hmm. the elections, and it's interesting just to see, um, you know, Trump's closing argument be all about this threat from the caravan. Yeah. And um, to, you know, again, sort of amplify sort of threats from, you know, these, you know, what is it, 5,000, 3,000 um, yeah, you know, poor exactly. people, thousands of miles <laughs> from the U.S. border, while at the same time, you know, the, you know uh, the unemployment rate in the United States is like at a historic low, yet rather than tout um, the slow unemployment rate as, you know, his closing argument for why you should vote for Republicans, he's touting this, you know, threat from a, a caravan of of would-be refugees thousands of miles from the U.S. border. It sort of now makes a little more sense to me. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly right. And, you know, he's appealing to people who do feel more objectively threatened, like the working class, who are not separating out, you know, that threats he's describing are more illusory than real. Um, You know, we found, for example, and I think this is why working class find populist leaders so appealing, is because they feel a tremendous sense of disruption, 
Well, if, um, if they're I, of the same ethno-racial background, presumably not, I can't imagine black working class people find uh, much solace in Trump right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that, you know, in large part, though, what we need to do in this country is to help people who do feel threatened objectively, um, who see their communities collapsing um, with, with the advent and, 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 and the train of globalization having left already. Uh, there's other countries like in Germany, for example, that have much more protective stance toward the working class, uh, where, for example, there's certificates that you can gain to be able to gain employment and get different types of organizations. And we don't have those kinds of structures in the loose United States. And, and so I think if we get back to the issues of who's threatened and why, and hopefully, you know, ultimately they would find the appeal of populist leaders less, less so. Uh, well, uh, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'll post a link to, to your research and, and to your new book on, on the website. This is t- totally fascinating. I'm, I'm glad to see that this book is doing so well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And if any of your listeners on my website, there's a tight loose mindset quiz mm. that can help you figure out, you know, how where do you fall on the tight loose spectrum? Each of us uh, leans tight or loose for good reasons based on our personal experience, whether it's our generation or our social class or occupation or country, culture. Um, and a lot of the conflicts that we have, I'm not bringing this back to like, you know, sort of the here and now of everyday life uh, that we have with our spouses or bosses or kids, you know, they could be traced to differences in tight loose. Um, and often we don't understand our own setting, <laughs> sort of uh, how we fall on this continuum, but we also don't think about why others might be different than us for good reasons. And I think that's another place to think about how tight we supplies in our own life. How do we negotiate it with our spouses, with our kids? You know, which domains do we have to be strict in versus can we give a little more slack in? Um, so I think that that's more of at the personal level. I've had a lot of people write stories to me about how they've seen tight loose in their everyday lives. And I would really love to hear from your listeners uh, any tight loose stories they have. There's a place on the website to send some of that. Well, I'm, I'm going to take it, take, take that. Quiz. <laughs> I think like I project a looseness though. Uh, deep down, I'm actually probably tight. Yeah. We have, <laughs> you know, I, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's something that is also domain specific. Maybe some of us are tighter and, mm-hmm. and also, it, you know, I always say that being ambidextrous is actually mm-hmm. probably the best, healthiest place where we kind of deploy tightness and looseness as needed. Um, like in organizations, innovation, for example, if you're a leader trying to innovate, we need looseness to kind of generate ideas, but we need tightness to implement. Mm-hmm. So um, I call this the kind of Goldilocks principle of tight loose, that having balance um, both at the individual level and the national level is critical because, you know, when you get to extreme in either direction, it's, it's problematic. You can't go full Larry David, I suppose. <laughs> or Borat. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, good. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate this. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michelle. That was fun. I, I, she kept me on my toes for sure. And I don't know where I pulled some of those acronyms out of, but they were hidden somewhere in the recesses of my brains. Again, big thank you to those of you who are choosing to unlock all sorts of premium content on globaldispatchespodcast.com and gaining access to my news clips service, Don's Digest, by becoming a premium subscriber. I will also send you a sticker in the mail, a Global Dispatches Podcast sticker, if you become a premium subscriber. I so appreciate your support. I think you will appreciate the benefits that I'm offering, and we'll all grow this show together. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.